0: Good morning, we've got uh, two readings for you this morning. One is in the care link, but Jeff's given me a a second one. If you'd like to look it up, it's Genesis 28. That's uh, the book of Genesis 28, verses 10 through to 17. If you'd like to follow, I'll be reading from the NIV version and then we'll go on to the the verse from John. Genesis 28. Jacob's dream at Bethel. Jacob left... I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, and the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring back to this land oh sorry, I, will, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's Genesis. Well, moving on, if you wanted to turn over to John, John 1, 43 to 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can any good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
1: Well, thank you for that uh, reading, David. Uh, We are commencing today. It's a historic day in many ways, isn't it? uh, We're commencing today a series on John's Gospel. By and large, we'll be moving sequentially through the Gospel, but uh, I want to look at a few passages as we go through that uh, I find quite delightful and under-preached, not exposed often enough. So we'll look at some of the famous ones, but uh, uh, we're in fact going to skip over that incredible theological uh, feast, the prologue of John's Gospel in Chapter 1, and we're going straight to this uh, little passage. We're going to come back to the prologue around Christmas, uh, God willing, and, uh, but today I want to look at this little passage which I find quite delightful. Uh, a few years ago I was uh, down in Melbourne, I'd, I was working interstate at the time and decided to come back and visit the folks and there was a particular uh, bookshop close to where they lived, a Christian bookshop, a real quality one, uh, not well known and it was attached to a local church and I came down to this, uh, this bookshop where I'd... Um, basically lost our family fortune over the years <laughs> and, uh, um, and uh, uh, only to find after having parked the car and walked around to the front of the building that the place was gone, it was closed. And I thought, my goodness, what a travesty of justice. How am I going to waste the family fortune now? But, uh, so I went next door to the, uh, the local church uh, that used to have some allegiance to this bookshop and, and I walked in. And uh, there was a bit of a scene happening, and I was going to ask someone at the reception there, uh, "Where's the bookshop now?" But uh, there was this lady who looked Middle Eastern, and uh, there were raised voices, and she was speaking to the receptionist, who uh, weren't really particularly wired to what was happening for this woman. She had some basic questions, and uh, as I listened, I thought, "I think I'll get involved here," and um, pressed on, pressed my way in. And, and I could discern that this woman was chasing a Bible in Arabic. That's what she wanted. And so she'd come to the nearest church to get one. Uh, they didn't know how to help her or where to get one and someone was ringing up on a phone and it was all oh, a real mess. And I said, I know where you can get a Bible in Arabic. Uh, and... She said, I can't get there, I haven't got any transport. I said, well, look, it's right near where my parents live, I'm on my way there. And you know, she took a great risk hopping into a car with a stranger. I must have looked very innocent. <laughs> and uh, she, she, she was twice my size anyway. <laughs> so it was, uh, um, and uh, anyway, we, we parceled her off into the car and we walked around and drove around to the uh, Bible Society where she would be able to get one. But as she is getting out, I said, why do you you, uh, want a Bible in Arabic? Are you a Christian? She said, oh no, I'm Islamic. But through this week, I've been having a recurring dream and your prophet appears to me in this dream and he tells me to get his book and it will be all clear. God is at work in our world but his preferred way of working, despite what we get the impression, if you listen to the ABC, is that, you know, evidently we're on the way out. (laughs) But uh, I look forward to that day when uh, Philip Adams is at church. (laughs) (laughs) And God is able to reach people in complete darkness, but it seems to be that his preferred way of dealing with us Is not just through the Spirit, but through the Spirit uniting us to His Word. And that's what is happening in this little passage. This is a story, this John passage, of an encounter that people have with uh, Jesus. Uh, Nathaniel's not a guy who gets a a great deal of airplay in in the Scriptures but uh, this is a story of the day he met Jesus. And I would like to suggest that there are parallels here, even though we live in a different, if you like, dispensation to Nathaniel. We are living post-Calvary, post-Pentecost, with the help of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're the new model. He's the old model. You've got to realise that when we read the Gospels, that uh, these people uh, are at a disadvantage to us. We actually know God and He lives within us in a way that these people never had a lasting experience of God like that. So we read the story that the next day, next day after what? Well, Jesus has been picking up teams and uh, getting his 12 together and the previous episode was about Andrew and there's this sort of story Jesus calls Andrew. Andrew says, he wouldn't believe who I met and goes and tells his brother. Likewise here, Jesus here meets Philip and he just says to Philip, follow me obviously Jesus is known and Philip drops tools and follows Jesus but in the process he decides to go and get Nathanael and Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, it wasn't actually much of a city, Um, uh, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see, see for yourself. So it's astonishing that in one encounter, Philip has deduced that the hope of the ages of Israel, the prophet like Moses, the one that was to come, is finally here. And I bet when Philip got up that morning and he went to do, he'd his trade, the last thing he thought would happen was that he'd discover that this is the day of the Lord. I think the last thing he thought was that he'd bump into the Messiah on the way, transacting through life. But God knew where Philip was and he cut across his tracks. And God calls Philip, the Lord Jesus calls Philip to follow him. So Philip gets his friend, Nathaniel, and he's obviously excited. He says, we found the one that the ages have hoped for. All the prophets spoke about, the law pointed to it, Moses spoke about it. Go anywhere through the Old Testament, this one is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's a bit of a sticking point for Nathaniel, and we have a little bit of working class snobbery here. Because uh, Nathaniel comes from Bethsaida, he comes from up north, and, and uh, it's a little bit like um, Nathaniel of, of Wurialic, criticizing the Christ of Coldstream, you know. But how on earth can Jesus Christ come from some backwater like that? You, you'd expect him to come from the New Yorks of this day, or the great learning centres, or the great legal centres of Boston, of Harvard, of Cambridge, and Oxford, maybe, but. Beijing, but he comes from Jesus, the hope of the ages, comes from this washed-up backwater. I'm sorry for those of you who live in Coldstream. I'm not <laughs> meaning to infer um, to, if we can just back that one up a bit. <laughs> but uh, Jesus come, comes to Nazareth, and it's amazing. Well, then we have the encounter, and. Philip totes Nathaniel along and there is Jesus. You can always find Jesus around this time of his ministry because he's surrounded by a crowd. And Jesus is doing what Jesus does. Jesus is a compulsive teacher. He can't help but preach. And the crowd is hanging on every word, but in the middle, he's in full force, in the middle of that stream, he sees Nathaniel, And he just says, just hold on a minute, folks. Just stop everything. You see this guy coming towards me? This guy is a man and has the old AV said, in whom there is no guile. This guy is straight up, dinky die, true blue, whatever Aussieism you want to use. This guy is authentic. I can tell you that. Nathaniel hears this, he's in the earshot, and uh, he says, uh, Excuse me, um, I don't think we've had the pleasure. <laughs> And uh, Jesus says, oh yes we have, I saw you under the fig tree. At which Nathaniel comes out with this incredible statement. Nathaniel says, and you've got it there in, in your scriptures as well, if I can only move my finger I'd see it. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? I mean, maybe Jesus is speaking figuratively, I saw you under the fig tree and Bible readers and scholars as yourself would know that in the code book, the Old Testament, vines and fig trees are metaphors of Israel. It's a little bit like Jesus saying, oh yes, we've met, I saw you uh, buying a sausage at Bunnings. <laughs> That's a statement of location. And uh, But I still don't think Nathaniel would have gone over the top, he would have come out with these superlatives that you're the king of Israel, you are son of God, just because you saw me at Bunnings, doesn't, doesn't work, does it? But then as you think a little more deeply, and I'm sure at this point Nathaniel's brains and cogs would have been working overtime and he would have he would have come to the point of saying also, um, well maybe this is a deeper sort of metaphor, maybe it's a spiritual thing that's being spoken about here. He would know that in the code book in the Old Testament, there were prophecies that spoke about the coming day of the Lord uh, using that phrase, fig tree, like I bet you've heard of this one before. Micah 4, 2 and 4. They will wet bet, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. That's one of the prophecies. Or Zechariah again, we return to Zechariah. I will remove the iniquity of this day, says Zechariah 3, 9 and 10. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbour to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's plug and play that one. So maybe Nathaniel would have picked up that he's speaking about the fact that not only has Jesus seen him in Israel but that Jesus thinks that this is the time of the day of the Lord, the promised day when good things are going to happen to Israel. I still think it doesn't quite work. He, He might be okay if he said oh, I perceive you are a prophet, or, well, that's interesting, Rabbi, that's your spin on those texts. But I still think it's an over-the-top statement, and I'm troubled by it, and I was troubled by it, until I found an old commentary by Leon Morris, one of the best, uh, one of my old professors. And in that footnote on this passage, he pointed out that in the Jewish, if you like, study Bibles, when they had their scroll, they'd all so had a running commentary for when you had difficult passages. And this sort of built up over the centuries and you could see what the great rabbis thought certain phrases meant. And it was interesting that when you read those passages in Micah and Zechariah, the rabbis in their margins, in their study Bibles that the devout would read the serious student would read when you read vine and fig tree it would say when you read this plug and play devotional life let's try that nathaniel is being told along and he sees jesus jesus is speaking to the crowd he stops everything he turns to nathaniel he says just folks i want to show you someone who is authentic True blue Israelite, right? This is the guy. Nathaniel says, oh, I don't think we've had the pleasure. Where did you meet me? Oh, we've met all right. Under the fig tree. Get it? Read devotional life. And Nathaniel goes, this guy's a complete stranger. And yet somehow he's familiar. I have met him. And Nathaniel had had a moment that was a depth dimension deeper than real life in his prayer life. As he's reading his scroll, his study Bible, where God had become incredibly real to him. And effectively, this is where we need the doctrine of the Trinity to explain... Effectively, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, had done what the Holy Spirit does and shed light in his heart and revealed the first person of the Trinity. And now Nathaniel sees this one enfleshed, a man like him, and the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, now really reveals to him the second person of the Trinity, and he knows them to be the same being. And that's why he does his theology on the run and in jibber jabbers out this little confession. <laughs> you're the son of God. He recognizes him. He he is inadequate to put it into words. But you're Israel's God. And we've met. This tells us five things about what we can understand our privilege as Christians. You know, we live in a day where so much is made of subjective spiritual experiences. I could uh, spend a lot of time with a scrapbook of Christian rubbish that I've picked up over the years. People making spurious claims for the Spirit about this and that and the other. How do we work our way through such guff? I received a letter in the mail the other day, this is one, a while back, and I was the privileged bearer of this gilt edged letter, an invitation to come and hear a certain Prophet John speak. And he informed me in this letter that this particular year was the year of debt amnesty in heaven. Did you know that? And he also informed me that the reason why we've got big credit card debts and mortgages is because the devil's doing it. I thought it was the Commonwealth Bank, but oh, well, <laughs> <well>, maybe. <laughs> NAB, I could believe, but Commonwealth on. <laughs> and uh, now here's the spin because he's on the inside track with God, if you tithe, because that's biblical, tithing. of your existing debt and send it to him, he'll pop in a good word with you with the man upstairs. There's one born every minute. (laughs) Unfortunately, they vote and reproduce. (laughs) But folks, how can we see our way through all that stuff? In my parents' age... They didn't worry about subjective things. They didn't take themselves so seriously. They were taught about the objective basis for our spiritual experience and that's what we've got to get back to. We cannot have an encounter with God unless these five things are true. I'm sorry, I should have produced notes or PowerPoints for this. But uh, first one is that if you want to put it simply, his shape permits it. His shape as the triune God permits it. Mysticism, by contrast, the folkloric religion of the ignorant, places the initiative for man to know God with the mystic, with man. It's his doing and some people are super spiritual gurus. But if God wasn't triune, he would be a total mystery. We would not be able to discern him at all. It would be like my dog understanding algebra. No, he's good, but he's not that good. We couldn't understand God. We couldn't comprehend him. We couldn't even discern him. It would be pure. He is totally other to us. He's not us. We're creature. He's creator. But the doctrine of the Trinity is saying that God has a complexity about him where God can step out of himself to reveal himself and still be Lord and he can retain and decide who gets to see that. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's about how we can know God. Spirit introduces us to Son. If God was not like that, we could not know him. His nature is what produces the capacity for us to know him. It's God's decision. The unknowable God who is hidden to us all has the capacity to remain God but step out and be known. Second point. That's the heaviest one, folks. Second one. His spirit presents it. This... Opportunity to have an encounter with God is presented by the third person of the Spirit. And the the interesting thing is that the Holy Spirit never reveals the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, His job is to reveal Jesus, who is the revealed one of God. You know, he, He is like the spectacles through which Christ becomes clear. And that's His delight to do that. That's his whole role in the Godhead. Mysticism basically says God is a mystery. But you see what happened in this story? God is made recognisable by the Spirit. Oftentimes you'll have people like the Dalai Lama or others, you know, I, I just can't get over the fact that they called the Dalai Lama His Holiness. Uh, The guy doesn't know God. You can say that with certainty because if the Spirit of God was at work in his life, he would recognize that the name of God is Jesus Christ. The God who is revealed is Jesus Christ. He is the only God that you're ever going to meet. And that's the work of the Spirit. Not to reveal the Spirit, not to reveal some other God, to reveal Jesus Christ. His shape permits it, his spirit presents it. He makes Christ present to us. The trouble is, the third principle, is our sin prevents it. It's fascinating that when Jesus spoke to Nathan, about Nathaniel to the crowd, he picked up on his moral qualities... He didn't say, here is a super spiritual prayer warrior. He said, here is a man who doesn't play games with God. He's not saying Nathaniel was sinless. But when Nathaniel has a sense of sin, he clears the record. He says, you're right. Hey, that's my mail. You haven't come to the wrong address. I did that. That's my responsibility. He is humble before his God. That's how come he knows God. I think as a pastor over many years, I think one of the saddest things I've found is some Christians just do not have the honesty of a deep relationship with God. It's sin that prevents us knowing God. And when God comes a calling and he taps on our conscience, which is the work of the Spirit, we have two options. We can either exonerate ourselves and say it was like Serena, it was someone else's problem. God, you're insulting my dignity. You can play the narcissistic games of trying to build yourself up in God's estimation. Or you can say, God, you're done right. I've done it again. Stupid me. And God at that point can have a relationship with you. It's not the fact that we're not gurus that is the problem. The problem is, is that our sin and God's holiness cannot coexist in the same heart. If you want to build grit in your relationship, let sin build up. But God wants to have that encounter with you. He zealously desires it. And so next time the Spirit comes to convict you of that particular thought, that particular word, that particular action, when He comes a-calling and He knocks on your conscience door, you've got to realise that that is the cost. That the God of the universe, the immense, infinite One, the Holy One of God, wants to have a relationship with you, but you would prefer to have a cover story and say, I'm actually better than you know I am. That's the deal. That's what we're playing when we're playing with sin. His shape permits it, his spirit presents this relationship, but our sin prevents this relationship. But the interesting thing is, then we really read, I like the way Nathaniel says, you are Israel's God. This God has a track record. It's called the Old Covenant. This God has gone out of his way to reveal himself in the ether of human experience through that that pilot project called Israel and his relationship with them. I'm amazed in this, but I shouldn't be amazed in this hyper-narcissistic age, how many people aren't interested in reading the scriptures. I was doing something like this with a, a youth group up in the hills of Adelaide, a big church that had 250 in the the uh, youth group and I was trying to spell out to these young teenagers this particular night um, with a, a subset of this group I was trying to spell out just how essential it is to get the discipline of meditating on the scriptures reading the scriptures getting to know them daily and getting to know God through them and I was halfway through sort of doing this and the youth pastor himself cut me off and he said uh, basically you've got to be joking i said what what about you mean to tell me that i can't know god if i don't read my bible to him it was a novel idea obviously i'm telling you with all seriousness If God goes to the trouble over six thousand years to record His track record, it was for a serious business, so that we would know Him in terms and in places that are familiar to us as human beings. What a condescension! What a gift! And we don't want to know that. It's like I remember when I was at university once, and you know, long, dim, dark years ago. I wasn't married, and I take myself back to that age at university when I was an eligible bachelor. And uh, I and a group of other eligible bachelors used to study under a staircase in the main library at Monash University on a big table. That way we could talk and muck around and wouldn't get turfed out. And uh, uh, we were there, we were all studying economic statistics at that time. And then one day, at our table, we came down the stairs and round our little alcove to our table, and there sitting at our table were a couple of members of the opposite gender. just, just Our table. And we put our books down and introduced ourselves and tried to get you know the idea across that this is where we usually study <laughs> anyway uh one of them uh, I got chatting up a bit and uh you know and uh anyway, everyone left for uh, the lectures and she said, "You want to go to a co- want to get a coffee and she's talking about the small calf at monash university infamous small calf and uh And I said, well, the good Scot that I am, I said, well, if you're paying. (laughs) And uh, uh, (laughs) so off we went and we went to the small cafe and we sat down and and, uh, with my artistic talent, I began to, she said, tell me about yourself. And so I started to paint the picture and put her in the picture of my sporting prowess and my musical prowess and my other prowess (laughs) and... uh, and uh, anyway, she's sort of sitting there, and you know, it's like the, those Angus eyes from last week, you know. And she's sitting there, and, and, she, and she says the most silly thing. She said, "Oh, I don't want to know all that stuff. I just want to know about you." <laughs> and I thought that is silly. I am my story. That's what gets me out of bed. That's what makes me tick. That's on my mind. That keeps me awake and it sends me to sleep. That's me. You, want to do, you don't want to know my story? You really don't want to know me. And it's the same with God and his prowess and his record and his ambitions are far more profound than mine. And yet we think we can get by without reading his book. God wants us to know him and he's inspired the prophets and he's inspired the apostles to make him clear through this book. It's a very interesting book, very difficult but very powerful. And the promise is that when we open this book up, this same Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus Christ to Nathanael through reading probably the passage that was read first, He makes himself clear to us. His shape permits it. His spirit presents it. Our sin prevents it. But his story promotes it. This encounter that we can have with this God. Well, we finish when we come to verses 50 to 51. And Jesus sort of wraps it up pretty quickly. He says to Nathaniel, you think this is something? Because I said I saw you under the fig tree you think that's something and then turning to the crowd he uses all the words you the second person pronoun in this sentence they're all plural he's now talking about you all (laughs) he says this not just to nathaniel He says, you're right? He says, because I said to you, Nathaniel, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You all will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you all, you all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he getting at? Jesus is saying that there is a new paradigm coming. There is a new model saint coming off the assembly line. There is a new phenomenon available just around the corner from when he said this. And that model is you and me. The saint. The saved person. No longer, Jesus is saying, will you have to seek out a sacred site a cathedral, a lords, a mecca. The day is coming, Jesus said, when you all will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What Jesus is getting at is that when you little old saint. And I make a little space in our day to open up His book and meditate upon His word, then that is a sacred sight. And Heaven is paying attention and doing His bidding. And Jesus is sending the Spirit and the Spirit is illuminating those words into our heart if we will have the time for that. What an incredible privilege to be born in this era, post-Pentecost, when we can know the triune God. And folks, that's only possible because he's dealt with the sin issue. The angels of God, the ladder of God, is the gift of the crucified Jesus. That you would have this privilege to hear him speak to you through his word. Mysticism says God is everything and everywhere. All. there is a ladder that you've got to climb and there are first class and second class and third class but Jesus says, no. I'm going to make it so that y'all can lock into to heaven's gate whenever, wherever, you just want it. <laughs> what an incredible privilege it is to be in union with this same Jesus who knew Nathaniel. It's a wonderful thing that tomorrow morning, whenever you do it, you can open this book. I find I've got to open the book with a biro and write or else I drift. But whatever is your pattern, you can just do that And the same Jesus who knew Nathaniel inside out, who knows you inside out, is giving you his full attention. Praise God. If you really want to enjoy that, appreciate it. Don't think the day of the Lord is future, somewhere else. Today is the day of salvation. Amen.